This is the Ellis Martin Report. When you hear us mention companies doing any kind of business, there's a large probability, if not a certainty, that the Ellis Martin Report is compensated for that mention. Subscribe to the Ellis Martin Report. It's easy and it's free. Visit us at ellismartinreport.com. Here's Ellis Martin. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Abraham Drost, CEO and Director of Clean Air Metals, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol AIR and of the U.S. on the OTC as CLRMF. Clean Air Metals' flagship asset is the 100% owned high-grade Thunder Bay North Critical Minerals Project, a platinum, palladium, copper, nickel project located near the city of Thunder Bay, Ontario, and the Lacta Eels Mine, owned by Impala Platinum. Mr. Drost is a professional geoscientist and former president, director, and CEO of several successful natural resource companies over the course of his 35-year career. Abraham, welcome to the program. Great to have you on the air today. Thanks, Ellis. If you don't mind, for our audience, which is new to your company, give us an overview of Clean Air Metals. Well, certainly. Thank you. Clean Air Metals is a TSX venture-listed company that was formed about two and a half years ago around the consolidation of two very promising platinum, palladium, copper, nickel assets here in northwestern Ontario, Canada, specifically Thunder Bay, where I live, and the project's about a half an hour away. And so over the last two and a half years, we've been advancing the project systematically. We've raised $58 million to do that. It's all gone into the ground in drilling. Most recently, we've had a very strong vote of confidence from Triple Flag, Precious Metals, a royalty company, majority owned by Elliott Management out of New York, who put a $15 million investment into the project just before Christmas. And that's a great vote of confidence that they see a future for production of platinum, palladium, copper, nickel at Thunder Bay North. I took a bit of a deep dive into the company, of course, like I do before most interviews, and I noticed that your projections over the next 10 years are quite significant. Let's talk about that. Fundamentally, 90% of the projected revenue from the project, which is in a pre-feasibility study, so it's past the initial preliminary economic assessment. It's now in full pre-feasibility under supervision of our chief operating officer, Mike Garbutt, mining engineer, and our executive chairman, Jim Gallagher, also a mining engineer. Well, we're really looking at at producing platinum, palladium, copper, and nickel as the main value drivers here. And of course, the significance of that, platinum in particular, is that it feeds directly into the whole battery metals revolution. Certainly, there's a lot of talk in North America about the critical metals or the critical mineral supply chain. Well, this is a source, a domestic source of platinum, palladium, copper, and nickel. Copper and nickel, of course, feed directly into batteries as we know them, the Tesla battery also with lithium and cobalt. But more importantly, platinum is the main driver for green hydrogen, both the production of green hydrogen from renewable energy like wind and solar, and also the use of hydrogen in a fuel cell to provide onboard electricity to a much smaller battery. So we believe that actually domestic platinum production will relieve the pressure on the North American supply chain because much smaller batteries are required. And that has particular implications for bulk transport, like transport trucks and trains, planes, where you can't build batteries so big that you eliminate your payload. So the idea is to have onboard electrical generation through a fuel cell, which is existing technology. And so we're very pleased to potentially contributing platinum to that supply chain for use in fuel cells. But we also have palladium in a one-to-one ratio, Ellis. So regardless of the way things go, I mean, palladium is $2,000 an ounce, platinum is about $1,000 an ounce, and it's 
felt that as internal combustions come off here in favor of battery electric and hydrogen hybrid fuel cells in the future, that as palladium comes off, platinum will increase in stature. So we've got both sides covered. I was wondering how that was going to fan out, knowing that eventually there will be no more new internal combustion engines on the market. So the automotive landscape will be changing and that would actually mitigate the use of platinum and palladium. But you're saying essentially that's going in the opposite direction. Palladium perhaps, because palladium, of course, is used primarily in catalytic converters, which reduce harmful exhaust gases in internal combustion engines. But platinum stands alone as being critical, hence the critical minerals, critical to the hydrogen hybrid revolution, which, as we say, will relieve some of the burden on the supply chain because less battery materials are required. The batteries can be smaller. We can reduce the pressure on the supply chain, on our domestic supply chain. We can move things along very efficiently to that transition. That transition in Canada is a real thing where the federal government has now set 2035, the year 2035, for a complete ban on the fabrication of new internal combustion engines. I know that in the United States, the Biden administration has said that they want 50% of the entire federal fleet to be non-internal combustion by 2030. So these limits are real, and they're real time. But fortunately, in the U.S., we have the Biden Climate Initiative, and so they're putting their money where their mouth is. I'm driving a car that weighs almost three tons, and it's fully electric. Are you saying that in the future with these green hydrogen cells, that that's going to change entirely, and we won't have to burn up energy carrying around that much weight? Yes, I'm saying exactly that. So those batteries can be reduced to a third of their size. With onboard electrical generation, it can be completely carbon-free. That's the next phase of the battery electric revolution. We're not there yet. We're not there yet at all. We're driving all these electric cars in California here. There's quite a few of them in the greater Los Angeles area and in the Bay Area. And knowing what I know about the business, I'm thinking, well, that carbon footprint has to be intense somewhere other than here. So Abraham, you're not just an exploration and development company. You're way past that. You are essentially, and I'm saying it, you don't have to agree with me, pre-production. I think that's a fair comment, Ellis. We are in pre-feasibility under the supervision of some very competent mining engineers. We're looking at a construction decision in Q4 of 24 or on a 10-year production window from 27 to 2037. So that's hitting the sweet spot for all these dates that I've mentioned with respect to the politicians and reduction of internal combustion engine production and so forth. And how close are you to the end users? We're in mid-Canada. Certainly, we have one of Canada's largest palladium mines operating 60 kilometers up the road. All their production goes to the OEM or Original Equipment Manufacturing Auto Companies. And I expect ours would be much the same. Our project is much closer to town. It has excellent infrastructure, power line, paid provincial highway. It has a very low capital intensity and also access to a stable workforce. So we feel very good about our prospects here at Thunder Bay North. And you have enough money to carry you forward for a while. Well, look, Triple Flag Precious Metals, a TSX royalty company, majority owned by Elliott Management out of New York, a large private equity group, just invested $15 million into the project, and they only get paid back if we go into production. Groups like this do a considerable due diligence. They were in the data room for several months, uh, but they pulled the trigger just before Christmas. And so that, for us, was a major validation moment for the Thunder Bay North project. Much of their risk was basically mitigated before they even sent you dollar one. That's a big 
commitment and that's a big green flag. Like, let's go. Absolutely. I don't think it can happen soon enough for Triple Flag and Elliot, but at the end of the day, yeah, we have a very systematic process here with Jim Gallagher and Mike Garbett, my mining engineers. These guys are very orthodox. We will do the full feasibility study. We will make the construction decision. We may take on an operating partner to reduce project finance risk, but at the end of the day, we plan to produce under the clean air metals flag. Tell me about the share structure of the company, Abraham. Sure, Alice. So we have 224 million shares issued. Keep in mind, we've raised $58 million since inception, since we started trading in May of 2020. And so we have funded that project very handily. We can raise money. That includes the latest $15 million financing from Triple Flag, which I will point out was completely non-dilutive. We didn't issue an extra share or a warrant for that. So now we are in a stage of the project where we can start leveraging the asset, not the equity. And I think that's extremely important for our shareholders. Abraham, it's a pleasure to chat with you today. I look forward to updates as soon as you can get them to me. This is an exciting project. I haven't seen anything of its kind in the space. Congratulations on all the hard work you've done up until this point, and I look forward to a fantastic year. Thank you so much for joining me today in the program. Thanks for having me, Alice. I appreciate it. I've been speaking with Abraham Drost, CEO and Director of Clean Air Metals, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol AIR, and in the U.S. on the OTC as CLRMF. Head to the company's website, cleanairmetals.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Would you like to be one of the first to see who we are following? Subscribe to our audio newsletter. It's free. ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Adam Smith, co-founder and vice president of business development for Oroco Resource Corp, a public mineral exploration company trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol OCO and in the U.S. on the OTCQB market under the symbol ORRCF. Oroco is focused on the development of a large copper deposit in the Santo Tomas project in coastal northwest Mexico. Santo Tomas hosts a multi-billion pound copper resource defined by historical drilling and currently being confirmed by ongoing exploration drilling by Oroco. Copper mineralization at Santo Tomas is located at surface and therefore potentially amenable to low-cost mining methods. It's very well located with respect to the infrastructure that's essential to a large mining operation. And Mexico is among the world's top mining jurisdictions with laws and trade agreements that protect the rights of mining companies. Since commencing exploration and resource definition at Santo Tomas three years ago, Oroco has made a series of rapid advances and the year ahead is rich with catalysts, such as a formal resource definition and economic evaluation, each of which carries the possibility of a company valuation re-rating. These milestones will be achieved against the backdrop of a positive forecast for the price of copper, possibly to historical highs, as a result of dramatic shifts in metals' importance to industrial and consumer markets. Here's Adam to tell us about Oroco and these shifts in copper markets. Thank you for the thorough introduction, Alice. Good to be back speaking with you. Copper is indeed an interesting subject. Goldman Sachs titled a recent research report, Copper is the New Oil. In 2022 and prior to concerns of an economic slowdown, copper prices hit historical highs, over $5 a pound versus today's approximately $4 a pound. And recently, copper in inventory, metal available to industrial users, dropped to just several days of consumption, the lowest level since records have been kept. The factors behind copper's rise and the historic share price movement are intractable, inflexible, long-term trends that offer investors, I think, real opportunities. Constrained supply is meeting increased demand in ways that provide tailwinds for the price of copper and the value and profitability 
in the copper industry for many years to come, even decades to come, is going to be enhanced as a consequence. Copper is an essential commodity. The metal is everywhere in our world. Electronics, electrical transmission, heating and cooling, electric motors. You and I and everyone listening are surrounded by copper right now. Our use of copper has risen 50-fold in the last century and is set to rise further as it's not just essential to economic development and rising standards of living, but it's the material essential to all renewable energy technologies and what's being called the electrification of everything. The shift from fossil fuel-driven economies to economies driven by renewables and low-carbon technologies that power our world is going to be driven by copper availability. Our use of copper over the next two decades is expected to exceed the amount of copper used in all of industrial history. This is the reason Goldman Sachs calls copper the new oil. That's a very in-depth explanation, Adam, of the demand side. Now, does the supply side also offer an equally compelling story for investors? It certainly does. It's a very interesting point in history that we're at if copper is the subject. I would advise young graduates from engineering and business programs to look at copper. I'd be that guy at the cocktail party telling young Ben the one word to pay attention to is copper. Because we're at a point where not only is copper going to be driving the economies going forward and driving decarbonization, as an example that people can relate to, electric cars use three times the copper of an internal combustion engine car. Copper will indeed become as widely understood, perhaps even quoted on the nightly news, as oil is currently. Global copper stocks right now are at historical lows with just several days of supply in the warehouses that hold inventories. Many of the world's largest sources of mined copper are aging and in decline. The average grade of mines has been steadily dropping for decades, and the rate of discovery of new copper resources has been in decline for three decades despite increased exploration spending. New copper resources over the last decade have declined precipitously, and one study suggested that more copper resources were generated during the last decade by simply lowering the cutoff grade, the lowest grade that can be economically mined, rather than traditional discoveries. The bottom line is that copper demand is forecast to outstrip supply for decades to come by amounts that are forecast to total many tens of billions of dollars in value. This is obviously going to be very supportive of higher copper prices and supportive of higher valuations for those who own copper assets like Santa Tomas. You know, there's a variety of research houses that follow companies like yours. What are they saying? The research is a line. When we were involved in assembling the mineral title concessions that make up Santa Tomas, I had a great deal of time to study the subject. I looked at all the producing copper assets in the world. I looked at all the discoveries that were not yet turned into mines, not yet developed into mines. I looked at the exploration stage projects, and I noticed some very interesting trends. The vast, vast bulk of copper that's been discovered in the last hundred years is in mines that are in production. Those mines, a great many of them, are very, very large. They supply a significant amount of the world's mined copper, and they're very old. Fourth largest copper mine in the world, north of our Santa Tomas project, that has been in production for over 100 years. And many of the world's largest big, giant copper mines like that are aging. And it looked to me like if the forecast for increased copper usage were accurate, that we really had a shortage of new copper resources to put into production to meet that demand. That was seven, eight years ago. More recently, a great many investment houses have started to notice that trend, particularly as renewable energy started to become the focus. As electric cars started to go from theory to reality, as the major European economies started to put end dates on the sale of internal combustion engines, and renewable energy projects took off and started to form, as they do now, the largest sources of new energy in the world. I'll focus on one particular research house, Goldman Sachs, who've been very accurate and very active 
in the forecasting business for copper. Goldman Sachs says copper markets are already in deficit, meaning the demand for copper already exceeds supply, and that, that's one of the reasons why copper in inventory has dropped to record lows. Goldman says copper stocks are at 14-year lows. Other studies say copper in inventory are at lows for the entire period of record-keeping. Forecasts of future supply are being lowered. Demand from the biggest copper user, China, has recently been upgraded. New mine approvals have plunged to cycle lows. And Goldman Sachs are calling peak copper in 2024 with open-ended depletion and deficits into the future. They're forecasting significantly higher copper prices in the very near future. And a great many other reports from a great many other industry experts forecast the same thing. Well, certainly that would suggest investors position themselves for this copper rush. I know I have. Tell us about Oroco and its Santo Tomas project and how that fits in. I certainly will. Thanks, Alice. Santa Tomas is located in coastal northwest Mexico. It is within one of the world's three big copper belts, the so-called Laramide Belt, named after the geological era during which the copper was emplaced in that belt. It includes a lot of the world's biggest copper mines running from northern Mexico into Arizona and further north from Arizona. Santa Tomas was discovered in the late 1960s before Mexico had foreign ownership rules that allowed foreign companies majority ownership. But nevertheless, it was drilled during three successive drilling campaigns. And by the mid-1990s, full suite of drill data, metallurgical testing data, mine planning, etc. was in place. And Santa Tomas was the subject of a resource estimate by a firm in Tucson. And the engineering firm Bateman Engineering put all of that information together and studied Santa Tomas for production. They published a pre-feasibility study in 1994 that scoped Santa Tomas for the production of 125,000 tons of copper per year. That's over a billion dollars per year of sales in today's terms. Those reports were historical in nature, and because of their age, the Toronto Stock Exchange requires us to accompany any statement of the results of those studies with the caveats that they are historical, they're not to be relied upon, and that additional work would be needed to bring those reports up to current compliance standards. Uh, compliance under current mineral reporting rules. Well, Oroco's been drilling Santa Tomas for the past two years. Our drill results, we believe, have largely satisfied any doubts that the results from the 1994 reports can be repeated. We have drilled now over 70 holes at Santa Tomas in 43,000 meters at 43 kilometers, almost 30 miles of drilling at Santa Tomas. And that drilling has been very corroborative of the historical results and supportive of the idea that the resource at Santa Tomas can in fact be expanded and that its limits are not yet even with our larger drill program defined. Oroco commenced exploration at Santa Tomas three years ago after an almost two decade period when work was not possible due to legal title dispute at Santa Tomas that we resolved with over a decade of work that was successfully concluded in January of 2020. We've raised over $50 million since then, conducted a phase one drill program that's nearing conclusion. In the next couple of quarters, Oroco will publish both an updated and compliant economic assessment for Santa Tomas. The resource defined historically at Santa Tomas is measured in the billions of pounds of copper, many tens of billions of dollars of contained metal value. And I believe that makes Santa Tomas among the largest newly defined copper resources in the world. Santa Tomas, as a copper project perspective for being put into production, offers some big advantages. It sits at low elevation. It sits on the surface, so it's possibly amenable to low-cost open-pit mining. It is located very close to all the necessary infrastructure. In fact, Santa Tomas sits in a region called La Entrada al Pacifico, the Pacific Gateway. It's a multimodal transport and infrastructure initiative by both the Mexican and the U.S. government to support just this type of industry. 
is a high-pressure gas pipeline built by TransCanada Pipelines and running from Texas to the port of Topolobombo, 100 miles to our west. There's a hydroelectric dam, regional power infrastructure, highway system, and a very supportive local population all close to the property. Mexico itself is a tier one mining jurisdiction. It's the world's largest producer of silver. It's the top five and top 10 producer of a dozen other important metals. The rights of miners are enshrined in the country's constitution, and companies like Oroco benefit from the presence of very robust free trade agreements between the United States, Mexico, and Canada. So Santa Tomas sits in a region where mining is part of the local economic and cultural history, where there's a great deal of infrastructure of the type that would support a large industrial operation like this and in a country that is very supportive of mining and for which mining provides a great deal of economic benefit. The location will almost certainly provide a prospective operation at Santa Tomas with advantages both in the capital expenditures and the cost to build the operation as well as OPEX, the operating costs at such an operation. Well, copper has moved back up over $4 just very recently. What does that mean for your project? It's very significant. It underlines the importance of timing in the mining industry, in every industry really, but in the mining industry in particular because it's a very cyclical one. Santa Tomas, as I mentioned earlier, was discovered decades ago. It was held off of the market. Work at Santa Tomas was initially held back by Mexican foreign ownership rules. That changed in 1992. Very quickly after that, the project was the subject of investment that took it up to a certain level of understanding and an economic study. But then work at Santa Tomas was restricted by two and a half decades, first of low copper prices and then of a legal title dispute. We assembled the land that makes up this project. At the heart of that assembly process was a legal title battle in the courts of the Bahamas and Mexico and the United States. We won that definitively in 2020. So work at Santa Tomas has never really followed the commodity price cycle. It's been held back by a variety of other things. Now that we've commenced work at Santa Tomas, we realize in some ways how fortunate that two-decade delay in work at Santa Tomas has been. During that time, copper discoveries dropped. Production from copper mines started to drop because of their age and declining quality. The electrification and renewable narrative went from theory to reality, and copper prices are now responding by going higher. And there's almost unanimity among the investment world that copper prices will have a very, very strong couple of decades, hitting record prices, making copper assets more valuable than ever, and making copper the new oil. So timing is everything. And I think through a series of events that have turned out to put us in the right place at the right time, I think the development of a compliant mineral resource estimate and an economic study of Santa Tomas in 2023 puts us very much in the right place with the right metal at the right time. Given that those results may be in fact positive, what's the next step after that, after this year's over and the beginning of, of next year? Position yourself for a potential JV with a major? Are you a takeout candidate? I'm just asking questions that any investor would. Very fair. And that is something that's on our mind. Where What is the exit strategy for investors? How do they succeed with his investment? The world's big mining companies sustain themselves on projects like Santa Tomas. These are the big assets that carry those companies over multiple commodity price cycles. They provide the bulk of the revenue. They're low-cost producers that are the mainstay of the world's biggest mining companies. And as mentioned earlier, the discovery of these assets has fallen off a cliff. From the 1990s, where dozens upon dozens were discovered until just the last, say, five, six, seven years, where there's really only been a few discoveries. The inventory of available projects, even owned by the major mining companies, to be put in production and meet future demand has fallen to record lows. So that would suggest that the major mining companies are looking to add to their inventory through mergers and acquisitions, through the acquisitions of projects like Santa Tomas 
that are in the hands of others and that have a shareholder structure that allows for their sale. These major mining companies are cashed up because of record high and sustained high commodity prices. They're looking for assets to replace their inventory to be put in production to meet future demand. Yet the number of such assets, at least by one study published in 2018 and updated in 2020 and 2021, is limited to just a handful. And this is in a world where dozens and dozens of new mines are needed to meet future demand. So that suggests that, yes, major mining companies are in a position to buy. They've got the cash to do it and they've got the inclination to do it. So we watched the mergers and acquisitions activity in the mining sector very closely. It has started to tick up in the last six months, and there's every reason to think that that will continue and indeed get stronger. This rising demand dramatically reduced levels of discovery, large future deficits and price rises forecast, together with the strong cash position and motivation to add to their inventory of producing assets would suggest that a purchase by a major mining company is indeed a possibility. They certainly do happen, and we expect them to happen during the course of the next few years with just a handful of projects around the world, because as you said, there is not much. I don't know how we're going to meet that demand, and I don't know how the price of copper is going to stay even close to where it's at right now. So there's a real good opportunity, in my opinion, it's just my opinion, and yours as well, for these equities like Oroco. Adam, tell us about the share structure of the company. Tell us about the float. So Oroco has 207 million shares outstanding. We have a market cap of just under 150 million U.S. with a share price of about 70 cents U.S., As of the end of the last reporting period, we have 23 million Canadian cash in the Treasury. So we're well-funded to take this project to first the mineral resource estimate and then the economic assessment expected mid-year. Well, Adam, it's been great catching up with you. Of course, you know I've been covering this company and watching it ultimately since 2006, which is a very long time. And I'm anxious and also patient at the same time to see all that you hope for and that we hope for come into fruition during the next year, two years or so. Thanks so much for joining me today on the program. Thanks, Ellis. Thanks for your long-term support of the company. And I hope you're as excited as we are with all of the vectors that are going to take a project like this to a successful exit for the investors now aligned after almost a decade and a half of work. I certainly am, Adam. Thanks again. Thank you, Ellis. I've been speaking with Adam Smith, co-founder and vice president of business development for Oroco Resource Corp. Oroco trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol OCO and in the U.S. on the OTCQB market under the ticker symbol ORRCF. Go to the company's website, orocoresourcecorp.com. For Adam Smith and Oroco Resource Corp., I'm Ellis Martin. Would you like to be one of the first to see who we are following? Subscribe to our audio newsletter. It's free ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with Keith Henderson, CEO of Latin Metals Incorporated, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange as LMS and in the U.S. on the OTC as LMSQF. Latin Metals is a mineral exploration company acquiring a diversified portfolio of assets in South America, primarily Argentina and Peru. The company operates with a prospect generator model focusing on the acquisition of prospective exploration properties at minimum cost, completing initial evaluation through cost-effective exploration to establish drill targets, and ultimately securing joint venture partners to fund drilling and advanced exploration. Shareholders gain exposure to the upside of a significant discovery without the dilution associated with funding the highest-risk drill-based exploration. Latin Metals has recently concluded deals to option out exploration properties to a wholly-owned subsidiary of Anglo Gold Ashanti 
a wholly owned subsidiary of Barrett Gold Corporation and Libero Copper. Keith, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Ellis. Thanks very much indeed. Last time we spoke, you promised more news. I didn't realize it was going to be this fast. It is significant. You have staked large sedimentary copper an exploration property in Argentina, about 99,000 hectares. That's a very large piece of land. Yeah, it's a very large piece of land. And when you go to places like Salta province in Argentina, you usually find the properties that you're interested in are already staked. This one's a little bit different because as far as I'm aware, no one's ever thought of this before. We took a pretty hard look at sedimentary copper deposits around the world and the features that you see in those. And, and we looked at Salta and went, you know, I think everything that you'd want to see is right here. So why don't we stake some ground here? And we did, and we staked this huge area. We went out right away and, and had a look at that. Got on the ground and we picked up some rocks, which look very interesting. They've got exactly the right style of mineralization that we like to see. We assayed one of those rocks. It was 2.4% copper. We've kind of proved the concept. We've had the idea. We've got a hold of the ground. And we think from there, this is an interesting project for us. This is something that we can certainly partner off to a major mining company partner. Because if a deposit of this type actually exists here, it's likely to be very large. And that automatically kind of triggers the interest of these kinds of companies. Do you think that kind of grade is consistent? throughout the project or is it too early to say way too early to say i was just really happy to have the idea and to come up with basically a proof of concept that we are right that there is that kind of potential but we've a ways to go the first thing we'll do is a whole bunch of broad geochemistry and try and pick up some anomalies that allow us to hone in a little bit from that huge area down some smaller more manageable areas and then we'll start to focus on those but but as we're doing so, we'll also be speaking to potential partners because what we have right now might be enough to get people involved. We have the grind, so what more do people need to know? We have new listeners all the time, an amazing amount of new listeners all the time. So if you don't mind, humor me. Give us a background of your company and describe your business model, please. Yeah, business model is a very strict version of a prospect generator model which means that we acquire ground really cheaply. We do work on the ground, just enough work that will get us to defining interesting targets, preferably drill targets. If we're able to, we'll get a drill permit. We don't do much more than that. And at that point, we go and find a partner for ourselves. That partner then spends all of the exploration money going forward, including the very, very expensive business of drilling. And so Latin Metals as a company never look at having to raise that kind of money, which means we're really protecting our shareholders from dilution. So we're taking dilution at the asset level rather than diluting the company repeatedly over and over again. So if one becomes a shareholder in Latin Metals, you're going to have some reasonable expectations about not getting diluted excessively over the coming years, about us trying to keep the corporate structure as tight as possible. And you can have some assurances about what your shareholding in the company will actually mean. And how many shares are out there again? About 70 million. 70 million at the moment, and you're trading at around 10 cents in the US, 14 cents in Canada, and copper right. is on the rise right now, isn't it? Yeah, like we went and got money in October, late October last year, which will cover us for a good while. So we're financed for what we need to do. Since we closed that financing, the stock's up 50%. We're starting to see some improvement in liquidity. We've been doing a lot of marketing. And we're certainly getting the cooperation of commodities in the background, which is really, really helpful. Copper and also gold. This show, the Ellis Martin Report, has a portfolio of copper companies, probably four or five. And I would say each one offers a unique opportunity. Each one trades at a different price point. One of the reasons I like your company is the price point it's at right now with your very tight business model and the fact that you partner primarily with majors. We focus as much as we can on major companies. It's not a particularly easy thing to do. Like major companies. Companies don't do very many deals with junior mining companies, and they don't do very many deals on relatively early.
early stage projects. We closed two of these deals with majors last year, something that we are extremely proud of. For investors looking at the company, that in itself is almost like a proxy for the kind of due diligence that an investor might like to do. These major companies not doing many of these projects, the fact that they've come to Latin Metals for two deals, being Barrick and Anglo Gold Ashanti, speaks volumes about the projects, the quality of the projects as they sit today. And then with that kind of partner, you know that they've got the technical capabilities to take it forward. You know also that they've got the financial backing, that if they're lucky enough to find exactly what they're looking for, they've got all the financing they need to take the project forward, which is only good news. Well, Keith, for the record, I should say that I am biased. You are a sponsor of this radio program, but I urge our audience to take a careful look, a close look at Latin Metals. That is latin-metals on the internet.com. Keith, thank you so much for joining me today in the program. Thanks very much, Ellis. I've been speaking with Keith Henderson, CEO of Latin Metals Incorporated, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange as LMS and in the U.S. on the OTC as LMSQF. Go to the company's website, latin-metals.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Would you like to be one of the first to see who we are following? Subscribe to our audio newsletter. It's free. ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Andrew Fink, Divisional Director of Minds and Money, as we discuss Minds and Money Miami, coming to Miami, Florida, the Wall Street of the South, February 23rd and 24th, 2023. Minds and Money Miami will gather leading CEOs from the mining and investment landscape from across the globe, driving dialogue focusing on key global trends, collaboration strategies, and the pathway towards energy transition. Andrew, welcome to the program. Nice to visit with you today. Delighted to be with you today, Ellis. I would say that 90% of our visits have been in London, England, but the next time I see you, I will see you in Miami on February 23rd and February 24th of this year for Minds and Money Miami in a very warm place. Yeah, we're delighted to come to Miami for the first time. It's been a city that's been on our radar for a while. We did used to do an event up in New York before COVID, but I think that in the post-COVID environment, we looked at the US and we looked at where to have our next Minds and Money event in North America. And I think a couple of things stood out as far as Miami is concerned. I think firstly, it's got a very, very strong investor base, lots of retiree retail investors there. But I think secondly as well, it's also got a very strong institutional base there as well the Wall Street of the South, and it's getting stronger. We've seen a lot of relocate there during the COVID years, and having relocated to Miami, they've decided not to move back, and you're waiting to be convinced and pitched out by mining companies who are coming along to our Miami events. It's certainly a very comfortable location in winter to get together and talk about investment potential possibilities, and indeed, talk about what's happening right now in the market, and I think I will say it, I I believe we're having a nice run in gold, which we haven't seen in at least a couple of years and it'll be a great place to really reach out to gold bugs and future gold bugs in that particular area. As you mentioned, it is heavily populated by high-value investors, family offices, and institutions, and that has just grown in the last couple of years due to the pandemic, as you stated. Yeah, I mean, I think that with gold, it's been an interesting last 12 months. I think 2022, we could describe as choppy, turbulent for gold. But 2023, if you speak to any analyst, any investor, they're very, very bullish about the price of gold. It's only going to go one way, and it's going to go upwards. And I think that is going to be a strong interest, especially at the expiration stage for gold mining companies. So we've got a lot of gold mining companies coming to the MAMI event, and 
I think that investors who sign up for our event will find a lot of gold companies there that they want to go and allocate their money to. So what can investors expect to see when they sign up for your event, as you put it? You're walking through the door. What do you see? Where do you go? What is the event like for people who have not been there? I guess it serves two purposes. Firstly, to educate, but also to provide an investment platform for those looking to invest into mining companies. Taking the educational side first, we'll have 80 mining companies at the event, and they will all be exhibiting at the event. So they have booths that you can go and come up to, find out more about the company. They'll also be presenting their mining spotlights at the event, which is basically a 10-minute pitch or update where they tell you about their mining project, their mining company, and why you should invest with them. The 80 mining companies we have are commodity agnostic. So as you said, there was a strong bias towards gold and precious metals companies, purely because probably about 50% of the mining companies globally are gold and precious. But we've also got strong representation from battery mineral companies, lithium, cobalt, graphite, etc., nickel, copper, and also some base metal companies as well. So that's, I guess, the educational piece. And that's also supported by a number of panel discussions with high-profile investors and also high-profile MCs and radio hosts such as your good self, Ellis. If they like the content that they hear and they like the mining companies that are presenting, they can also choose to schedule one-to-one meetings with those mining companies. The meeting plan is essentially like a matchmaking platform. We open it three weeks before the event. So if you are an investor and you sign up, Ellis, you can either choose to pre-schedule your meetings with mining companies and each meeting is 30 minutes slot, or you can decide after hearing the company present, you can then decide to go and book a one-to-one meeting with them afterwards. So that gives you a great business opportunity. And the last but no means least, because we want you to enjoy yourselves as well. We've got nightly drinks receptions as well. So you can always go and do some more informal networking over a glass of wine or beer. I think the best thing to do, and we've been talking with mining companies in South Florida, on the air, on the radio, all over South Florida for about 20 years now, the best thing to do is really to get to know the individuals that run these companies before you put your money into it. And that's what I'm constantly telling the audience. Get to know the people. It's really good. And if you develop a relationship with them, you get a feel for who they are, and you get excited about what they see in their eyes. In other words, a lot of these presidents and CEOs and the corporate development individuals of these companies, if they're really excited and they have passion about what they're representing, there's a reason for that. You might want to spend some time over a, over a beer, over a cup of coffee, or in these very intensive one-on-one meetings where you're really sitting down, just you and one or two individuals from the company really just getting a feel for what everything's about. It's a really rare opportunity in any sector to sit down and get this kind of information in one event with potentially 80 companies. I don't know how you can do 80 meetings, but there's some individuals that I've met that have done at least 30 at your events. I mean, I think there's an interesting point stemming from that. I think with there's always that old sort of like debate about which matters most if you're an investor, investing in the mining company because of the management team or investing due to the quality of the asset. Of course, the answer is always sort of like a bit of both. But if you had to give, like you say, it could only be one. I would always choose the management team because you have a good management team, which is really good at pushing their product. That will always help in the promotion of, a, of like an average asset. But if you've got the greatest deposit in the world, if your management team isn't good, doesn't know how to sell and promote the assets, then that sale price and then that share price is never ever going to go higher. And they'll never go from expiration through to development and, and into production. So I think the first point is the management is definitely the most important part, certainly like myself, when I choose to make a private investment. I think the second thing as well, again, slightly building upon what you're saying as well, the great thing about the mining industry, and point I really want to get along to investors listening in who are maybe generalist investors and not necessarily natural resource investors, 
The great thing about the mining industry is the CEOs and the heads of investor relations love to talk to retail investors. They love to go and share their story. They love to go and tell you as to what they're doing. They actually really look forward to the one-to-one meetings. And they're not bothered whether you're planning to invest, you know, or a million dollars. They want to go and talk to you. They want to go and sell their story. And they are very, very friendly and conducive to taking one-to-one meetings with you. I completely agree with you. And as a generalist investor and broadcaster, I find the mining culture to be the friendliest, the most engaging, and the most fun. You really do have a good time in this culture in good times or bad times. And I have to tell you, after attending your conference and moderating a couple of panels in London recently, in November and December of last year, I found the sentiment, for the most part, in a market which was nearing a bottom, to be quite optimistic, very optimistic for precious metals, base metals, battery metals, everything. Yeah, and I think that obviously we've kind of like talked about gold and that the optimism behind the price of gold and, and that the price of gold will definitely go up this year. Historically, when gold goes up, sort of like follows it and will actually go up as well. I think when it comes to battery metals, as probably a lot of your sort of listeners will know, is that there's very, very strong interest in the electric vehicle revolution and all the stories going around about decarbonisation and energy transition. Investing in companies that are part of that, what better opportunity then to go and invest in a mining company that produces copper or a mining company that produces lithium or a mining company that produces graphite. And we've got a lot of those companies coming along to the event in Miami. And you can learn quite a bit by attending this event, Mines and Money Miami, February 23rd and 24th. I will see you there. I'm looking forward to it. Andrew, thank you so much for joining me today on the program. Thank you very much for your time, Adam. I've been speaking with Andrew Fake, Divisional Director of Mines and Money, as we discuss Mines and Money Miami. Register now for this exclusive event in Miami on February 23rd and 24th. I'll see you there. Go to MindsAndMoney.com. That's MindsAndMoney.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Subscribe to the Ellis Martin Newsletter. It's free. Go to EllisMartinReport.com and fill out the quick and easy pop-up form. Visit EllisMartinReport.com.